Last week, we launched into a new teaching series entitled Live Like Jesus, and I tell you, this whole week, I've been excited about digging in so that we could get to uh, the next message through the series. If you remember last week, we started off our series with beginning to live like Jesus, and so we looked at Luke chapter number two, and when we saw in Luke two, we looked at the latter part uh, and saw Jesus as a boy, and how he lived his life even in those young years was that he was intentional, relational, and he was missional. And so when you find this example that Jesus has set for us, it really helps us to know better how we can begin to live like Jesus. Now, I know it's a very overwhelming thought at times, and probably you would agree to this, that there are times where you have said to yourself some different things that kind of cause you to doubt whether this is even possible, that I could put into motion the right way of living like Jesus. So you may say to yourself things like, I can never accomplish that. Or you might even would say, man, where would I even begin to live like Jesus? And you know, those types of statements that we say within ourselves, or even sometimes say out loud are really crucial moments, defining moments in our Christian journey. Sometimes we derail the train before it even gets out of the gate to build up energy and momentum because we say, how in the world could I ever do this? Guilt and fear become the two emotions that drive our mind they become our, really, our, our default. Sometimes we feel too guilty to live like Jesus, or we're too afraid to even implement that way of living. Some of us are afraid of failure, so we don't even try, or some of us are too consumed with guilt that we think there's no way that I can even begin to do that. But today, I'm here to remind all of us that we can live like Jesus. There are plenty of ways all throughout his life that he gives for examples, and today, we're going to kind of branch off of where we started last week, and we're going to start looking at those three areas of living like Jesus, relational, intentional, and missional. And so this week, today, we're going to start for the next several weeks by looking, living like Jesus, relationally. Now, if you need the notes digitally, you can find those at parkwaybaptist.org, and you can follow along with the message, or if you want to use the handout that was in the bulletin. Uh, that'll help you with our study guide as well. So would you take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 13? That's where we're headed today, John chapter 13. This morning, we're going to be given a glimpse into the very dearest of relationships that are recorded here in Scripture, some very intimate moments that Jesus had with his dearest friends, the disciples. These moments that are recorded here in John 13 are some very precious hours that Jesus would spend with his own, as recorded in verse number one. This was the night before his death. And so these next four chapters, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, are going to record the actions and the intents, very purposeful living that Jesus will do in order to prepare the disciples for what was coming. These four chapters are going to unleash some of the very things that Jesus will do before his betrayal, before his arrest, before the trial, before ultimately facing off with a denial from Peter and then the crucifixion on the cross. So how would Jesus spend these moments? The text is going to let us know that Jesus knew his hour was come. So therefore he knew his mission had been here to seek and to save that which was lost. And a part of that was going to be to, father, to follow the Father's will, though while in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, Lord, please allow this cup, this responsibility, this task to be passed on from me. He said, but ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. 
So he knew that his will, the work that he was here to do, was to accomplish few hours the night before his crucifixion were going to be crucial moments that he would pour into his disciples. This is going to be relational Jesus here. Because though he knew what was going to encounter, he did not wallow in his pity. He did not spend the next 24 hours completing everything that he had missed out doing. He did not make one last trip to Chick-fil-A to get the biscuit and and, uh, dipping sauce. He did not make one last trip to his favorite stadium to watch some entertainment. He did nothing of the sort to others. To please himself, he simply was relational, pouring into other people. So here we find in John chapter 13, this is how to live like Jesus. In verse number one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Well, Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, And he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, except to wash his feet, but is clean every bit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you? You call me master and Lord, and ye ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, or if you realize, if you understand these things, happy are ye if you do them. So this morning we're going to look at this text and we're going to look at relational living. Live like Jesus with relational living. Father, would you guide our study together through this text, important truths that we can apply to our lives. Would you free us from distractions this morning so that we can hear from you? We certainly express our full dependency on you this morning so that we would not speak of man's mind, but that we would speak of Holy Spirit-given message. So work within us, help us to be moldable, help us to be teachable, And then, Lord, even though it's a familiar text that we've heard time before, help us to look for new things that apply to our life where who we are and where we are today. And so shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, convict our hearts, and may we be tender today in Jesus' name. Amen. So stinky feet becoming squeaky clean really could be the title of today's message. This is really one of those weird moments that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples. When you study this text, you know that they're going to the upper room to have what is called the Last Supper. They would spend this time together, and this was going to be very precious time. 
And uh, they had gone into the upper room and probably walked in and saw the water basin there and a towel ready for feet to be washed, but there was no servant. Now, in the culture of the day, the the men and, and women of the house would come home after a long day of walking on the cobblestone streets, a very dusty walk and pathway, and their feet would become dirty. And so as they would enter into the house, instead of just taking their sandals off at the door and walking through the house with their dirty feet, the slaves of the house, I mean, this was uh, very much well known. The disciples would have known that as they entered into the upper room. These guys weren't squeaky clean. They probably had some pretty nasty, dirty feet from the sandal walking of that day. But when they realized that it was Jesus who would stoop himself down to take the water, the basin, and the bowl, and the towel to wash their feet, everything so drastically changed. I mean, they weren't going to wash the feet of each other. This was a group of guys that were just bartering with one another and who would be the greatest in heaven, who would get the prime seat sitting next to the throne of God. So you think that they were thinking right now of set. So they had come because I just love you so much. This was not their mindset. So they had come into the upper room and Jesus was going to take this opportunity. We would think that Jesus would maybe pick and choose. Like if Jesus does three or four, the guys would kind of get the hint and be like, okay, yeah, we, we got this. We can do the rest, Jesus, you sit. But Jesus did all 12 of the disciples. And we'd think, there's no way. I mean, look at Philip. Philip was the guy that when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, Philip was the guy in John 6, verse 7, said, this is impossible for us to feed this many people with what you've got. But Jesus stooped down and washed the feet of the doubter. Then he would go to guys like James and John, guys in the inner circle. We would think that these guys would probably be first in line. But yet remember, again, they were just in arguments with the rest of the disciples, even with one another. They got their mom involved to try to get a way for them to have a good seat in heaven one day. And Jesus even stooped down to wash the feet of people looking for leverage and only concerned for position and prestige. And then he came to Peter. Another guy, part of the inner circle, this is Peter. This is a guy who took his eyes off of Jesus in the middle of the storm. Uh, this is Peter, the guy who tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. You remember that story. Jesus said, Satan, get thee behind me. And this is the same Peter who has promised Jesus that no matter the pressure he faces, he will never deny Jesus Christ. This is the Peter who in 24 hours will curse the name of Jesus and will deny Jesus three times. And yet Jesus stoops down and washes the feet of this denier, of this guy who's a promise breaker. And then he moves on to Judas. And we would say, no way, no way in the world. I mean, if we knew who Judas was before he did what he did, we would avoid him at all costs. I mean, we do that even in our own surroundings today. Somebody said something about us. They slandered our name. They're rude to us. Anytime we try to have interaction or conversation with them, it, it always seems awkward and very contentious. And, and so we avoid them at all costs. For me to do anything on their behalf, to serve them, to build relationship with them, no thank you. But Jesus is going to stoop down to the guy who's going to sell him out for a pocket full of coins, to the guy who's only looking for himself, and Jesus would stoop down and wash the feet of the traitor. This is what Jesus does because he is relational. And so Christ had a relationship with all of these men. We would hope that he didn't. We would hope that there would be some excuse or escape clause to give us some assurance that we don't have to love and build relationships with the hard people in our lives. 
But in order to live like Jesus, we too must have relational living. And so what does that look like in this passage? I see in verses 1 through 5, there's that relationships are built by love. In verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. What an emphasis there. Now, Jesus knew his hour was come, and John, more than any of the other, other three Gospels, he records Jesus announcing his heavenly timetable. Jesus knew that there were times in his early part of ministry that his hour had not yet come. If you study through the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Mine hour is yet not come. John would record in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 30, his hour was not yet come. Again, in chapter 8, he would say his hour was not yet come. But then in chapter 12, verse 23, something makes a transition in the heavenly timetable. And Jesus said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then here in our text in chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour was come. And then as he dying on the cross there, excuse me, as he was praying before going to the cross, in chapter 17, verse 1, he says, Father, the hour is come. And so that heavenly timetable, we see here that God in man, of a servant, in order to, to uh, continue to build on these relationships. Do you see that? Like his hour has come. He's got 24 hours. His life is about to be taken from him. He is going to sacrifice his very being, everything he is. And yet he's still building on this relationship. Now this was a picture of Christian humility. Not only for what he did, but the example that he set by preparing for the work, by preparing the water, the basin, the towel, doing everything he would do for the actual washing of the feet. Now, his selfless servant is an extreme act of servanthood. It's an example for us to see as well as for his disciples to see. Now, that's who Jesus was. When you think about Jesus as taking the opportunity to teach the proud, arrogant, arguing disciples about true humility. Remember what Paul would write? He would write to the Christians at Philippi in the church there, and he would say, let, let not every man do, uh, let's see, how does it start? Um, look not every man. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Then he continued by saying, let this mind, this attitude, this spirit, this motivation be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. So now he's going to record this example of servanthood, true humility. And Paul is going to call on the greatest example of a servant in Jesus Christ. When he says he took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. I can't believe that. Like So Jesus then humbled himself in such a way that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus humbled himself as a servant here as an example for others to see, taking on this form, being obedient unto death. David Guzik said this, he didn't just say it, he showed it. And he showed it in a way that illustrated his whole work on behalf of his own. Now, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.17 says that the world through him might be saved. So we see this mission that he had, and he was going to continue to build on these relationships. These relationships were built by love. And then in verses 2 through 8, we see the recipients of our relationships. 
Now, if we were to pause for just a moment and think about the people that are, are in our relationships, we have a lot of people that are in a close-knit group, and then we have acquaintances, people that we interact with on a pretty regular basis. Um, and, and when we think about these recipients of our relationship, we should definitely be motivated to allow God to use us in a very broad and variety of ways. It's true that when we, we do find it much easier to... Um, we find it much easier to extend love and forgiveness and to build relationships with those who, who return that same spirit to us. Uh, Jesus knew that, and he addressed that issue in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Because sometimes we see that our time of investment in others is more motivated for us to do that when we're going to see bring great results or good returns. And so, therefore, we're motivated in those relationships. But Jesus addressed it by saying this, For if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those, for sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. Then he continues by saying, But love you your enemies. And do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. Ye shall be of the children of the highest, for he is the kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. You want to live like Jesus? You love those who are unthankful and those who are wicked. Boy, that's hard. That's hard to show love, grace, and mercy to someone who is unthankful. And some of you know what that looks like because you have them living in your home. Some of you have people in your close-knit circle, group of relationships of people who are unthankful. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you go out of your way, no matter what you do in order to express love and grace to them, they stiff-arm you, they put nothing in return, and they certainly don't ever say, thank you. Jesus knew what it was like to live a life in ministry to love those who were unthankful and to those who were wicked. Now that word evil comes and gives us this standpoint of people who just outwardly, rightfully want nothing to do with godliness. And some of you interact with that on a daily basis. Some of you have people in your life who you would just label as being wicked, not because you can judge them or define them, but because lining up with the principles of scripture, they are clearly labeled as wicked. And yet you have to interact with them you have to smile with them, you have to be kind to them, and you have to learn how in the world to live like Jesus, to love them. But Jesus reminded us, he said, don't just love those who show love in return. Don't just serve those who are going to serve you in return. Don't just invest in those who are going to show great returns. He said, love the unthankful and love the wicked. Jesus would put this into practice in verse number 2. Supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What would, it, what would it have been like for Jesus to live relational with Judas? Do you think Judas, as the men traveled, do you think he was always just in the back of the group walking? And do you think that when he would come up to Jesus, Jesus would be like, hey, Judas, sorry, I'm in conversation, maybe tomorrow. Do you think if Judas said, hey, hey, hey uh, Jesus, is there a time we could maybe talk a little bit? There's some things on my mind. Yeah, Judas, you know, I'm just, uh, the way you responded to me last night, uh, 
I'm just not really interested in having a conversation with you until I see a change. That was not Jesus. What did it look like for Jesus to have a relationship with Judas? Well, he was a traitor. He was going to do the ultimate of selling out Jesus. The verse tells us here that the devil had, was putting in the heart of Judas Iscariot. This is in no way it pardons Judas or excuses him for what he did. This wicked heart desired exactly what the devil desired. The devil and Judas were in agreement together. What does our Judas look like? For some of you, your Judas in your life is an ex-spouse. It's a parent. It's a past friend. Maybe a co-worker. Someone that you once trusted. Maybe it's someone who has deceived you, cheated you, misled you, maybe trapped you. They drain you emotionally and physically. They cause you fear, heartache, sadness, and regret. Your Judas is real. Live like Jesus and pray somehow to make mends to build a relationship. Now look in verse number five. He would also minister to his friends. The recipients of our relationship become the Judases of our life, our life, but also the friends. After that, he poureth water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. The disciples would have been more willing to wash the feet of Jesus than they would the feet of each other. Foot washing in the time of that society was a very lowly task, and so peers did not watch, wash each other's feet except on a rare occasion of a mark of true love or dedication to one another. They were just arguing about who would be the greatest, and so no doubt none of them were willing to stoop down and wash each other's feet. And verse 1 tells us how Christ, how he felt about his followers. It says that they were his friends. He loved them unto the end. So with compassion and grace, he loved them with a perfect, saving, eternal love. Now today, he desires for us to have that relationship with him, friend of God. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So he's, he's writing to Christians. Paul is saying there was once you were enemies, and uh, you were at friction, and now you have been reconciled by God. You had the mind of wicked works. Then he said, in the body of his flesh, in the, in the body and flesh of Jesus Christ, through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you pause on that verse alone, that marvels you because you're thinking, how in the world can I stand before the sight of God as being presented holy, unblameable, and unreprovable? Because you know who you are. You know the very core and being of who you are and how you struggle day in and day life. But this is where God says that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, we now can stand before God the Father and be presented holy, unblameable and unreprovable. He says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Colossians chapter 1. Every relationship that God blesses us with must at some point hear the gospel from us. They may see the gospel lived out and they must hear the gospel to be told. 
every relationship that God blesses us with. Hey, if you have relationships with other Christians, we talked about on Wednesday night being encouraging to one another to proclaim, to esteem the name of God, the promises of God, and the works of God. In conversations with one another as a church of brothers and sisters in Christ, it doesn't always have to be how terrible of a week you had or how stressful of a week that's ahead. You can just rest assured, be steadfast and firm that God is always only good. And you can for just a moment relish in that reality with one another and rejoice in that truth. That is speaking the power of the gospel to one another. So every relationship that God has blessed us with must at some point hear the gospel from us. Verses 6 through 8, we see that Jesus also is going to continue to build this relationship. A recipient of our relationships are the resistant. In verses 6 through 8, it's the interaction with Peter. And Peter speaks up. That's not unusual. Nothing different happens here in this text that we haven't seen already lived out by Peter. But he says, Lord, are you... Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you going to wash my feet? Peter is stunned by this. And and Christ understood the alarm and concern from Peter. And Jesus is, is not going to discredit him. He's not going to rebuke him. He simply responded by saying, let me explain. Let me teach you for this moment. And so Peter quickly replied with that resistance and said, thou shalt never wash my feet. This is the same guy that said, you are not going to that cross. I will never deny you three times. So this is the bold Peter that usually speaks before he thinks. He's the guy. So he failed to see what was taking place here because he meant well, but he he should have never responded that way. He failed to see the symbolism of spiritual cleansing involved. You see, washing his feet that day would not save nor secure his soul, but it was a picture of the cleansing power through the blood of Jesus Christ. This was a moment where Jesus would say again in verse number 10, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, wash except his feet. He's saying, you have already been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. And so now it was saying that this, this, what you do need is that every bit you are clean, but not all of you are, in verse 10. Use this as a teaching tool. You know, the resistant exists in our life. And the resistant need a little extra dose of patience, don't they? You're thinking right now of people in your life that are the resistant, and, and they may be unsaved, and they may be saved people. And when you think of some of the people that just are really resistant toward your love or your grace or your kindness or your relationship that you desire to pour into them, sometimes they're a little hard, resistant, they're difficult to talk to, they're difficult to love. They are unlovable. But that's where we continue to just be patient in pouring into them. We, could, we would definitely have excused Jesus if he encountered Peter and Peter would have been like, well, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus is like, here we go again. All right, Peter, listen. Uh, you remember A, B, C, and D just a few months ago? You remember a couple of years ago? You remember this? Why, Peter, why do we always face this issue with you? Why are you always so brazen and brass? Why are you always so resistant? That was not Jesus. He didn't even rebuke him. He just simply graciously taught him and guided him, and was patient with him. That's relational living. 
And then the last area in this text that kind of teaches us how, do, how in the world do we have relational living is that if we have a proper response, we're going to see this promised result. In verses 9 through 17, Jesus shifts and, and he encounters Peter and, and Peter says, not only my feet then, but my hands and my head just douse me. And then Jesus encounters all of the disciples in verse 13. In verse 12, he says, Know ye what, not what I have done? He says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Here it is. For I have given you an example. I have showed you what to do. Hey, disciples, I want to encourage you to live like Jesus. He says, I have shown you the example And then he continues in verse 17, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them, if you practice them, if you put them into action. Oh yeah, we see Jesus as our example, but just as we said in the beginning, we may say, I give up, no way. Or this is too intense, this is too high of a calling, there is no way that I can live like Jesus. But Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I've set an example, and if you will practice, if you will do, and you will put this into action, happy, blessed are you if you do them. So this proper response and promised result, we notice the pattern that Jesus has given us, it's humility, it's holiness, and then he tells us about this reward of of happiness this true peace and true contentment that can only come from God. Verse 15 gives us the example. Verse 17 shows us the reward. And when we follow his example to live like Jesus, and the promised reward is happiness, to be fortunate and to be blessed. So we ask, how can we be purposeful with relational living? Here's last three things in conclusion. Build relationships with those you already know. People that you already know in your life or invest in their spiritual well-being. People that you already know in your life today, look at how you take the next spiritual step with them. Let me encourage you, by the way, our discipleship ministry, it's not a program, it's not a set pattern that says it starts now and ends here. It is a ministry that will continue to go, to grow, and to be a phase that we go in this journey together. And I want to encourage you, to get involved somehow, some way. We've already done a small group pattern where we have trained 15 to 20 people through the material that they are ready now to go to their phase two so that they can help you go through phase one. Uh, This past uh, weekend, I sat down with one of the members in our church and we dug into lesson one, a heart that is eager and excited to learn, to apply. And then we encouraged them at the end. We said, now, one day there's going to come a time where you take this and you pour it into somebody else. And so that's the multiplication process. And if you're not taking spiritual steps, the church is here to help provide that. You can meet on a Sunday night, one-on-one, Wednesday night, one-on-one, Saturday morning at the coffee shop, whenever is best for your schedule to dig in to take next spiritual steps. That's living like Jesus. We don't want to be a church just of people that are wanting to be in neutral. We're not going to be a church that wants to be melancholy. We're not going to just uh, sit with everything that's already happened. We're always looking ahead that says, God, how can I take next growth pattern or growth steps? And so if you're wanting and willing to be involved in our discipleship ministry, you can either fill out a connect card, let us know, we'll get you connected in that way, or you can go online at parkwaybaptist.org, look at next steps, 
And that is a way for you to be discipled and then learn to pour into other people. Invite your neighbors over to eat. Throw a block party. Take them out for dinner. Play golf. Go fishing with them. Look to build relationships with those you already know in order for you to either show them Jesus Christ or to invest in their spiritual well-being. Secondly, how can we be purposeful with relational living? Build relationships with those that you want to know. Everywhere you go, you meet new people. I know on my list, I've got a number of people here of people that I know as acquaintances, but I want to know them better. And the reason why I want to know them better is because I want to invest in their spiritual well-being. I want to see if they know Jesus Christ, if they're ready to receive the message of the gospel. If they are a believer, how do we take the next spiritual step? And so everywhere you go, you meet new people. Take advantage of those new contacts. They're there on purpose. God has intentionally placed them there. And so build a relationship with them and try to win them to Christ or invest in their spiritual well-being. The third way is how can we be purposeful with relational living is build relationships with people that you used to know. You may have had some friendships in the past that are not active. And perhaps you were not saved then and you're saved now. Maybe you have some people in your life that you can invest in and it would be great if you reached into your past and won some old friend to Jesus Christ or invested in their spiritual well-being. This is something that convicts me as being back to Lakeland, a place that I was here and growing up from 88 to 96 before going off to college. And there's a lot of friends that I know from my high school years that God could lay in my pathway of relationships that I used to have, people I used to know, that God could use that encounter to plant gospel seeds or at least to invest in spiritual well-being. And so as you yield to the Lordship of Christ and you begin to use your influence for Christ you will begin and continue to see God do a mighty work through your relationships. And so today we're challenged, live like Jesus with relational living. God, we so much desire to not be an excuse maker. We don't want to come to the end of our day and just say, I give up on living like Jesus. We don't want to say it's too hard. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. We don't want to be that excuse maker. We certainly don't want to be a promise breaker. We don't want to stand before you with commitment and say, I'll do it. And then we never take the active, practical steps to make it happen. So now we just come before you. We can either be lazy and pass this by and say it's for somebody else and it's not for me today. Or we can be spiritually minded and active today. And we can take ownership of this very thought. And we could say, to the best of my ability, with God's strength and guidance and help, I'm going to live like Jesus, and I'm going to, I'm going to live relationally. Father, I don't know what that looks like tomorrow, the next day, for everybody here. I know what that looks like for me. And so with the same conviction that you brought to my heart this week in preparing this message, the same mirror that I looked into and said, that's you, buddy. These are practical truths for your life. They would see who they are, where they are spiritually, and that they would commit to living relationally like Jesus. And then would you give them the practical steps, where to find those relationships, or the ones they already have, how better to invest in them, to share the love of Jesus Christ, or to spiritually invest in the well-being. Help us to humble ourselves in such a way that we know we need to take spiritual steps as, just as, as well as the people we partner with. So God, my desire and prayer is that you use these truths 
and changed because of it. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes all this possible by the finished work of the cross. I thank you for that true salvation that comes to us, not by good works, but by your righteousness. I thank you for that grace extended by faith, believing in our heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the work of your hand, that we can confess our sins to you and trust in you as our Lord and Savior. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know you in a very personal and real way, would you work in their hearts? Father, use this time of invitation for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.